This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 25. The Works of Bankruptcy, Railway Grandeur, How to Fill an Empty Treasury, The Sumptuousness of Mother Church, Ecclesiastical Splendor, Magnificence and Misery, General Execration, More Magnificence, a good word for the priests, Civita Vecchia the Dismal, off for Rome. There are a good many things about this Italy which I do not understand, and more especially I cannot understand, how a bankrupt government can have such palatial railroad depots and such marvels of turnpikes. Why, these latter are as hard as adamant, as straight as a line, as smooth as a floor, and as white as snow. When it is too dark to see any other object, one can still see the white turnpikes of France and Italy, and they are clean enough to eat from, without a tablecloth. And yet no tolls are charged. As for the railways, we have none like them. The cars slide as smoothly along as if they were on runners. The depots are vast palaces of cut marble with stately colonnades of the same royal stone traversing them from end to end and with ample walls and ceilings richly decorated with frescoes. The lofty gateways are graced with statues, and the broad floors are all laid in polished flags of marble. These things win me more than Italy's hundred galleries of priceless art treasures, because I can understand the one, and am not competent to appreciate the other. In the turnpikes, the railways, the depots, and the new boulevards of uniform houses in Florence and other cities here, I see the genius of Louis Napoleon, or rather, I see the works of that statesman imitated. But Louis has taken care that in France there shall be a foundation for these improvements, money. He has always the wherewithal to back up his projects. They strengthen France and never weaken her. Her material prosperity is genuine. But here the case is different. This country is bankrupt. There is no real foundation for these great works. The prosperity they would seem to indicate is a pretense. There is no money in the treasury, and so they enfeeble her instead of strengthening. Italy has achieved the dearest wish of her heart and become an independent state, and in so doing she has drawn an elephant in the political lottery. She has nothing to feed it on. Inexperienced in government, she plunged into all manner of useless expenditure, and swamped her treasury almost in a day. She squandered millions of francs on a navy which she did not need, and the first time she took her new toy into action she got it knocked higher than Gilderoy's kite, to use the language of the pilgrims. But it is an ill wind that blows nobody good. A year ago, when Italy saw utter ruin staring her in the face, and her greenbacks hardly worth the paper they were printed on, her Parliament ventured upon a coup de main that would have appalled the stoutest of her statesmen under less desperate circumstances. They, in a manner, confiscated the domains of the Church. This in priest-ridden Italy. This in a land which has groped in the midnight of priestly superstition for sixteen hundred years. It was a rare good fortune for Italy, the stress of weather that drove her to break from this prison-house. They do not call it confiscating the church property. That would sound too harshly yet. But it amounts to that. 
There are thousands of churches in Italy, each with untold millions of treasures stored away in its closets, and each with its battalion of priests to be supported. And then there are the estates of the church, league on league of the richest lands and the noblest forests in all Italy, all yielding immense revenues to the church, and none paying a cent in taxes to the state. In some great districts the church owns all the property, lands, watercourses, woods, mills, and factories. They buy, they sell, they manufacture, and since they pay no taxes, who can hope to compete with them? Well, the government has seized all this in effect, and will yet seize it in rigid and unpoetical reality, no doubt. Something must be done to feed a starving treasury, and there is no other resource in all Italy, none but the riches of the church. So the government intends to take to itself a great portion of the revenues arising from priestly farms, factories, etc., and also intends to take possession of the churches, and carry them on, after its own fashion, and upon its own responsibility. In a few instances it will leave the establishments of great pet churches undisturbed, but in all others only a handful of priests will be retained to preach and pray. A few will be pensioned, and the balance turned adrift. Pray glance at some of these churches and their embellishments, and see whether the government is doing a righteous thing or not. In Venice, today, a city of a hundred thousand inhabitants, there are twelve hundred priests. Heaven only knows how many there were before the Parliament reduced their numbers. There was the great Jesuit church. Under the old regime it required sixty priests to engineer it. The government does it with five now, and the others are discharged from service. All about that church wretchedness and poverty abound. At its door a dozen hats and bonnets were doffed to us, as many heads were humbly bowed, and as many hands extended, appealing for pennies appealing with foreign words we could not understand, but appealing mutely, with sad eyes, and sunken cheeks, and ragged raiment, that no words were needed to translate. Then we passed within the great doors, and it seemed that the riches of the world were before us, huge columns carved out of single masses of marble, and inlaid from top to bottom with a hundred intricate figures wrought in costly verde antique, pulpits of the same rich materials whose draperies hung down in many a pictured fold, the stony fabric counterfeiting the delicate work of the loom, the grand altar brilliant with polished facings and balustrades of oriental agate, jasper, verde antique, and other precious stones, whose names even we seldom hear, and slabs of priceless lapis lazuli, lavished everywhere as recklessly as if the church had owned a quarry of it. In the midst of all this magnificence the solid gold and silver furniture of the altar seemed cheap and trivial. Even the floors and ceilings cost a princely fortune. Now where is the use of allowing all those riches to lie idle, while half of that community hardly know from day to day how they are going to keep body and soul together? And where is the wisdom in permitting hundreds upon hundreds of millions of francs to be locked up in useless trumpery of churches all over Italy? and the people ground to death with taxation to uphold a perishing government. As far as I can see, Italy, for fifteen hundred years, has turned all her energies, all her finances, and all her industry to the building up of a vast array of wonderful church edifices, and starving half her citizens to accomplish it. She is today one vast museum of magnificence and misery. All the churches in an ordinary American city, put together, could hardly buy the jeweled frippery in one of her hundred cathedrals, and for every beggar in America Italy can show a hundred, 
and rags and vermin to match. It is the wretchedest, princeliest land on earth. Look at the Grand Duomo of Florence, a vast pile that has been sapping the purses of her citizens for five hundred years, and is not nearly finished yet. Like all other men, I fell down and worshipped it, but when the filthy beggars swarmed around me, the contrast was too striking, too suggestive, and I said, O oh, sons of classic Italy, is the spirit of enterprise, of self-reliance, of noble endeavor, utterly dead within ye? Curse your indolent worthlessness! Why don't you rob your church? Three hundred happy, comfortable priests are employed in that cathedral. And now that my temper is up, I may as well go on and abuse everybody I can think of. They have a grand mausoleum in Florence, which they built to bury our Lord and Saviour and the Medici family in. It sounds blasphemous, but it is true, and here they act blasphemy. The dead and damned Medicis, who cruelly tyrannized over Florence, and were her curse for over two hundred years, are salted away in a circle of costly vaults, and in their midst the holy sepulchre was to have been set up. The expedition sent to Jerusalem to seize it got into trouble, and could not accomplish the burglary, and so the center of the mausoleum is vacant now. They say the entire mausoleum was intended for the Holy Sepulchre, and was only turned into a family burying place after the Jerusalem expedition failed. But you will excuse me. Some of those Medicis would have smuggled themselves in, sure. What they had not the effrontery to do was not worth doing. Why, they had their trivial, forgotten exploits on land and sea pictured out in grand frescoes, as did also the ancient doges of Venice with the Saviour and the Virgin throwing bouquets to them out of the clouds, and the Deity Himself applauding from His throne in heaven. And who painted these things? Why, Titian, Tintoretto, Paul Veronesi, Raphael, none other than the world's idols, the old masters. Andrea del Sarto glorified his princes in pictures that must save them forever from the oblivion they merited, and they let him starve. Served him right. Raphael pictured such infernal villains as Catherine and Marie de Medici seated in heaven and conversing familiarly with the Virgin Mary and the angels, to say nothing of higher personages, and yet my friends abuse me because I am a little prejudiced against the old masters, because I fail sometimes to see the beauty that is in their productions. I cannot help but see it now and then, but I keep on protesting against the groveling spirit that could persuade those masters to prostitute their noble talents to the adulation of such monsters as the French, Venetian, and Florentine princes of two and three hundred years ago, all the same. I am told that the old masters had to do these shameful things for bread, the princes and potentates being the only patrons of art. If a grandly gifted man may drag his pride and his manhood in the dirt for bread, rather than starve with the nobility that is in him untainted, the excuse is a valid one. It would excuse theft in Washingtons and Wellingtons, and unchastity in women as well. But somehow I cannot keep that Medici mausoleum out of my memory. It is as large as a church, its pavement is rich enough for the pavement of a king's palace, its great dome is gorgeous with frescoes, its walls are made of, what, marble, plaster, wood, paper? No, red porphyry, verde antique, jasper, oriental agate, alabaster, mother-of-pearl, chalcedony, red coral, lapis lazuli, all the vast walls are made wholly of these precious stones, worked in, and in, 
and in together in elaborate patterns and figures, and polished till they glow like great mirrors with the pictured splendors reflected from the dome overhead. And before a statue of one of those dead Medicis reposes a crown that blazes with diamonds and emeralds enough to buy a ship of the line, almost. These are the things the government has its evil eye upon, and a happy thing it will be for Italy when they melt away in the public treasury. And now, however, another beggar approaches. I will go out and destroy him, and then come back and write another chapter of vituperation. Having eaten the friendless orphan, having driven away his comrades, having grown calm and reflective at length, I now feel in a kindlier mood. I feel that after talking so freely about the priests and the churches, justice demands that if I know anything good about either, I ought to say it. I have heard of many things that redound to the credit of the priesthood, but the most notable matter that occurs to me now is the devotion one of the mendicant orders showed during the prevalence of the cholera last year. I speak of the Dominican friars, men who wear a coarse heavy brown robe and a cowl in this hot climate, and go barefoot. They live on alms altogether, I believe. They must unquestionably love their religion to suffer so much for it. When the cholera was raging in Naples, when the people were dying by hundreds and hundreds every day, when every concern for the public welfare was swallowed up in selfish private interest, and every citizen made the taking care of himself his sole object, these men banded themselves together and went about nursing the sick and burying the dead. Their noble efforts cost many of them their lives. They laid them down cheerfully, and well they might. Creeds mathematically precise and hair-splitting niceties of doctrine are absolutely necessary for the salvation of some kinds of souls, but surely the charity, the purity, the unselfishness that are in the hearts of men like these would save their souls though they were bankrupt in the true religion, which is ours. One of these fat, barefooted rascals came here to Civitavecchia with us in the little French steamer. There were only half a dozen of us in the cabin. He belonged in the steerage. He was the life of the ship, the bloody-minded son of the Inquisition. He and the leader of the marine band of a French man-of-war played on the piano and sang opera turnabout. They sang duets together. They rigged impromptu theatrical costumes and gave us extravagant farces and pantomimes. We got along first-rate with the friar, and were excessively conversational, albeit he could not understand what we said, and certainly he never uttered a word that we could guess the meaning of. The Civitavecchia is the finest nest of dirt, vermin, and ignorance that we found yet, except that African perdition they call Tangier, which is just like it. The people here live in alleys two yards wide, which have a smell about them, which is peculiar, but not entertaining. It is well the alleys are not wider, because they hold as much smell now as a person can stand, and, of course, if they were wider they would hold more, and then the people would die. These alleys are paved with stone, and carpeted with deceased cats, and decayed rags, and decomposed vegetable tops, and remnants of old boots, all soaked with dishwater, and the people sit around on stools and enjoy it. They are indolent, as a general thing, and yet have few pastimes. They work two or three hours at a time, but not hard, and then they knock off and catch flies. This does not require any talent, because they only have to grab. If they do not get the one they are after, they get another. It is all the same to them. They have no partialities. Whichever one they get is the one they want. They have other kinds of insects, but it does not make them arrogant. They are very quiet, unpretending people. 
They have more of these kind of things than other communities, but they do not boast. They are very uncleanly, these people, in face, in person, and dress. When they see anybody with a clean shirt on, it rouses their scorn. The women wash clothes half the day, at the public tanks in the streets, but they are probably somebody else's. Or maybe they keep one set to wear and another to wash, because they never put on any that have ever been washed. When they get done washing, they sit in the alleys and nurse their cubs. They nurse one ash-cat at a time, and the others scratch their backs against the doorpost and are happy. All this country belongs to the Papal States. They do not appear to have any schools here, and only one billiard-table. Their education is at a very low stage. One portion of the men go into the military, another into the priesthood, and the rest into the shoemaking business. They keep up the passport system here, but so they do in Turkey. This shows that the Papal States are as far advanced as Turkey. This fact will be alone sufficient to silence the tongues of malignant calumniators. I had to get my passport vised for Rome in Florence, and then they would not let me come ashore here until a policeman had examined it on the wharf and sent me a permit. They did not even dare to let me take my passport in my hands for twelve hours I looked so formidable. They judged it best to let me cool down. They thought I wanted to take the town, likely. Little did they know me. I wouldn't have it. They examined my baggage at the depot. They took one of my ablest jokes and read it over carefully twice, and then read it backwards, but it was too deep for them. They passed it around, and everybody speculated on it a while, but it mastered them all. It was no common joke. At length a veteran officer spelled it over deliberately, and shook his head three or four times, and said that, in his opinion, it was seditious. That was the first time I felt alarmed. I immediately said I would explain the document, and they crowded around. And so I explained, and explained, and explained, and they took notes of all I said, but the more I explained, the more they could not understand it, and when they desisted at last, I could not even understand it myself. They said they believed it was an incendiary document, leveled at the government. I declared solemnly that it was not, but they only shook their heads and would not be satisfied. Then they consulted a good while, and finally they confiscated it. I was very sorry for this, because I had worked a long time on that joke, and took a good deal of pride in it, and now I suppose I shall never see it any more. I suppose it will be sent up and filed away among the criminal archives of Rome, and will always be regarded as a mysterious infernal machine which would have blown up like a mine and scattered the good Pope all around, but for a miraculous providential interference. And I suppose that all the time I am in Rome the police will dog me about from place to place because they think I am a dangerous character. It is fearfully hot in Civita Vecchia. The streets are made very narrow, and the houses built very solid and heavy and high as a protection against the heat. This is the first Italian town I have seen which does not appear to have a patron saint. I suppose no saint but the one that went up in the chariot of fire could stand the climate. There is nothing here to see. They have not even a cathedral, with eleven tons of solid silver archbishops in the back room, and they do not show you any mouldy buildings that are seven thousand years old, nor any smoke-dried old fire-screens which are chef d'oeuvre of the Rubens, or Simpson, or Titian, or Ferguson, or any of those parties. And they haven't any bottled fragments of saints, and not even a nail from the true cross. We are going to Rome. There is nothing to see here. End of chapter 25